3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to communities since 1976. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning. You're listening on 3CR 855am here on our breakfast show with Grace and Rob. How are you are how are we all doing today? Morning Rob, how was your weekend? Good morning. Uh yeah, my weekend was good. Uh mostly just trying to survive the heat. Pretty much <laughs> the same as last weekend. Yeah, I feel like a, but I feel like it was a bit better than the week before. Yeah. I think Sunday the week before was the hottest Melbourne has ever encountered. I Well if I'm not mistaken. Wow. According to some mm. news source that I've read yeah. from and but yesterday was still predominantly hot. Yeah, um, I was sweating. I, I was sweating so bad. It's it's just insane. Like it was really, I don't know, man. Like all I felt was just heat and heat. Like even yeah. even if like I had like this cooler kind of AC mm. blowing at me, but then it just felt really warm. Like the air wasn't cold, and it was just not not a good time. It was not a good yeah. time. Yeah. So yeah, but. I su- we survived. We survived the heat. We survived. I think it's gonna be really hot again today it's and tomorrow. It's gonna be the same today. I think. Yeah. yeah. So listeners out there, I hope you're drinking plenty of water and taking care of your body. Put a lot mm. of sunscreen. Mm. Please put a lot of sunscreen. And yeah, eat healthy food. Don't eat anything that's like hitty. Yeah. 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 I said, uh, obviously attended the uh, Free Palestine rally yesterday and. It was really good, even though obviously it was stinking hot. It was it's really good energy yesterday. Sweet, yeah. Um, yeah, I wish I could have been there, but then I was doing some. I had work, sorry. I had yeah, I had work in the cool. morning, and then yeah. I also had to go home after that to deal with stuff to put on Tricia today. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mm. Awesome. Do we have, shall we get to headlines? Yeah. Awesome. A group of private job agencies have returned over $8.5 million back to the government between 2022 and 2023 following a crackdown on faulty claims. The amount is more than double returned in the previous 12 months, data shows. Under the country's employment scheme, outsourced companies are given what's called outcome payments for placing their clients into employment, and they can also claim reimbursement for money spent preparing job seekers f- for work. Uh, in the four year, in the past four financial years, the government has recovered over seventeen million dollars from employment service providers with eight and a half million of that recovered in 2022 to 2023 alone 
The Workforce Australia scheme is currently under investigation by the Albanese government following criticism the scheme is ineffective, ineffective and full of rotting and waste. And Workforce Australia job agencies have been forced to... Re- Apologies on that. I just realized I read the wrong thing. Uh, former President Donald Trump has get, got, gotten access to sealed documents on the witness threats in a Ma-a-Lago case. Prosecutors have alleged turnover exhibits on threats made against potential witness to Trump lawyers after George Judge ordered them to. So the sealed exhibits about threats to person trial witness after the federal judge overseeing his prosecution for retaining classified documents ordered the exhibit turned over despite the prosecutor's objections. People with a fam- who, are f- who were familiar with the matter said the exhibition was a point of contention because it detailed a series of threats that was made against witnesses who could testify against the former president at trial. And the matter is the subject of a criminal investigation by a United States attorney's office. Prosecutors have wanted to withhold it from Trump's lawyer. However, the presiding U.S. District Judge Aileen Cannon ordered that the exhibit that prosecutors in the office of special counsel, Jack Smith, had submitted, quote, ex parte, or without showing it to the defense, to be transmitted to Trump's lawyers after reviewing its content and deciding that it did not warrant that protection. Yep, so that's all we've got for headlines. And we might go for more later after that. So, listeners, you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. The law is part of our everyday lives, including when we buy something, use a service, have a job, or rent a house. The law can be used to help protect and support families when there is violence in the home or disputes over parenting arrangements. Sometimes we might need to understand the law to navigate specific government systems like Centrelink, getting a residency visa, or if we come into contact with the police. Community legal centres provide free, quality legal advice and assistance to help people with everyday legal problems. We focus on working with people who are experiencing disadvantage, such as financial hardship, family violence, homelessness and discrimination. Community legal centres are independent, non-government organisations and can be found across Victoria and Australia. If you're experiencing a legal problem, your local community legal centre may be able to help. To find a community legal centre near you, visit the Federation of Community Legal Centres Victoria at www.fclc.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Three CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. Three CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers, and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at Three CR. To find out more, go to three cr.org.au and get in touch. Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR with Robin Grace. Channel 9 has recently been defending itself against accusations it intentionally altered a photo of Animal Justice Party MP Georgie Purcell to make it more revealing. 
The news organization claimed that the edit was not a human error, but rather due to AI's automa- automation within the program Photoshop. I sat down with Dr. TJ Thompson, a senior lecturer at RMIT, last week to see how credible Channel 9's claim is. So, Dr. Thompson, first of all, I just want to ask, how does Photoshop's AI work and what are its limits? Thanks, Rob, for having me and for the question. So in the last um, six or so months, Photoshop has started integrating what it calls Firefly into um, Photoshop. Adobe has started integrating Firefly into Photoshop. And uh, what people use it for most is prompting in commands to add things or move things from an image. So you can type in a command and say, I want to add a you know, horse here, or I want to remove this house or whatever. You just highlight an area of the image and type a command in, and it will try to do that for you. That's the most typical thing people use that generative AI in Photoshop for. But there's also this um, other tool called generative expand. And what that does is it allows you to increase the frame size of the image and Photoshop will kind of imagine what lies beyond the frame parts that you expanded. So if you have just a really tight photo of a person's you know, face, just head and shoulders, and you want to increase the size of the frame, Photoshop will then imagine what lies beyond um, the frame that you've expanded. So that's the, the tool that was used in this recent case. And I guess then in MP Purcell's case, how if Channel 9's claim that it was uh, an AI error, an automation error, is true, how would generative expand feature create the photo that we saw? It's a good question. I've played around with it myself, that that, um, photo and different photos I've seen online of Minister um, Purcell, MP Purcell. And um, if if you use a a wider angle shot of her just from kind of um, mid torso up and try to use the generative expand tool, um, it kind of just extends the dress down in a very expected fashion. There's not anything dramatic or unexpected going on there. But what happens when you try to use a photo that's been more tightly cropped or framed, then Photoshop starts imagining more kind of um, uh, surreal or unexpected things because um, quite rightly so, it doesn't know what, what is actually in the image um, as it was shot in camera on the scene, at the scene. Mm. So... Um, uh, the folks at Nine said they used a, um, a shot that was kind of um, more t- tight and toward the neck of the, um, the image of the person's body. And so when it was a tight for a shot like that, there is a lot of guesswork that Photoshop has to do to fill in the blanks and make guesses and estimates for what lies below her body. So another kind of relevant thing to talk about here is training data and how training data um, is used to inform how AI works. So a lot of um, generative AI works on lots of oftentimes copyrighted content on the web. So things from uh, facilities from from movies, from video games, from stock photo libraries. And we oftentimes see a lot of um, more sexualized or more uh, revealing outfits in our popular media, in images of, um, of cinema or video games, that kind of thing. And so that training data is then being um, perpetuated and reproduced in AI generations. So you, you get three variations whenever you do a, a generative AI um, expand in Photoshop, and it gives you three different options to choose from. Oftentimes, one will be um, perhaps a person in a swimsuit or uh, in midriff, as we saw with, with the Purcell image, um, or maybe just a regular shirt, depending on the variations that are um, 
that are generated. How does the technology in Photoshop, um, the generative expand that you're talking about, how does that differ from the sort of technology used to produce? Are you, are you familiar with the Taylor Swift image that recently, I guess, for lack of a better word, went viral on X, AI-generated porn, yeah, essentially? I've seen it, but I've heard about that case, yes. Um, do you know much about how, as you were saying, like the the AI machine learning can make it make the end result quite surreal when it's assuming things are in places where you know it's moving safe, it's making a, it's just expanding the frame of of an image. How would technology like that differ from something that you know has the potential to create like AI generated porn, which is then spreading among social media? also a very good question rob thank you for raising it one of the the good things i think about adobe's tools is it does have some limits and boundaries and parameters around the types of things you can generate for Mm -hmm. so if you try to um, put in a a cheeky or or sexualized command into a prompt and say i want to you know increase the size of this person's breast that kind of thing it'll say sorry that violates our terms of service we can't um, return a result for you that meets the parameters of that command so adobe you know, for its its purposes is trying to um, ensure that these tools aren't used for nefarious or negative purposes. But there um, are many tools besides Adobe out there that let you do generative AI functions. And some of those other tools um, presumably don't have that same kind of level of care and concern and regulation around how they work. And so um, they could even be kind of purpose built for um, sexualized imagery. And that's kind of the purpose of some of those tools. So I think it, it does matter which tool you're using and kind of the flexibility the tool offers. Um, mm-hmm. I think some of the ones that you can get online um, are a little bit more permissive of what they generate and how they work compared to the ones that you can get in um, industry standard software like Adobe. You know, just going back to Channel 9 and sort of what they were saying is the excuse for the photo as AI automation. Does it, if it, if it is, you know, AI and AI is in Photoshop, would it have would it have the ability to simply edit the photo um, in the manner that it has done, well, may or may not have done, whether it's AI or a human, and then just immediately post or publish the photo to an end location? Based on my knowledge of Photoshop, I would say no. There has to be a what's called human in the loop with this process, mm. or with any process really in Photoshop, you can um, set up actions that let you um, record steps and, and replay those steps in a systematic way. So if you want to, you know, edit a photo the same way over 200 photos or that kind of thing, you can set up an action for that particular function and run that over lots of images in a batch process. Mm-hmm. Um, but with generative AI, um, there's supposed to be a person there clicking the button, choosing how much of the frame to expand, committing the change, and then saving the image and exporting it or publishing it to the web somewhere. So it, it's not to say that um, the computer is doing all this by itself and it's just completely autonomous and completely uh, unsupervised. There is a human in the loop who has to be involved in these processes. So I think from, from Nine's point of view, it's um, claiming that that the computer did the generation itself, but it's taking a bit of responsibility for not checking that the original image and the image it published were the same. And there was a big difference in this case between the two images. So it's taking some responsibility for not um, having assessed those two images more closely. How long has Photoshop had 
AI embedded into its software. Yeah, quick question. Uh, since about July 2023, that was when it was in beta mode. And then in September 2023, it went out more, um, rolled out more widely in a stable release of Photoshop. So since September, um, anyone who has the latest version of Photoshop has had it. Since July, people who are in the early beta group have had it. Right. And, and Photoshop yeah, has been around since the 90s, the early 90s. And course. you could do these kind of things back in the 90s um, with with digital software. It was a little bit more clunky and a bit more time-consuming. took a little bit more skill and time and effort. Um, but what we're seeing now with the increase of automation in Photoshop is it just makes these processes easier, faster, and kind of lowers the threshold, lowers the bar for entry for people to use these tools. Um, okay, so if if... If it's only if AI has only been embedded within Photoshop's um, software since July, has it been known to have similar sort of issues to what we're seeing with um, the image of Georgie Purcell? This is the first time I've I've seen a a similar case in the Australian context. Um, so I, I think this is a little bit of a, a milestone, if you will, where we had a, a news outlet, a news provider using generative AI without disclosing it, without transparency. Um, so I think this is a little bit of a, of a watershed moment in our local context. Um, there've been cases overseas where this has happened um, in, in higher uh, higher frequency rates. So we've seen um, AI generated images of, for example, the Pentagon in the States um, purportedly being on fire and, and smoke from the Pentagon um, being shown in a picture that was later proved to be false. Um, we've seen lots of examples of AI being used in other contexts in different um, places around the world, but I think this is the first time where we've seen, at least that I've seen, news outlet using it without transparency, um, where there is the definite potential to mislead or deceive the audience. Hmm. Right. So, and this this is my last question. Going forward, then, what, how can news organizations learn from this, and what is, um, what should news organizations approach is B, for AI's use? Such an important question. I think I might start by just mentioning the the MIA, the Media Entertainment Arts Alliance of Australia's Code of Ethics. So if you are a journalist in Australia and you are a MIA member, you're bound by the Code of Ethics. And that has a particular um, emphasis in the Code of Ethics that, that journalists present pictures and sound which are accurate, that they disclose any manipulation that's likely to mislead. And so I think it's important to kind of um, mention that upfront that we do have these responsibilities as journalists to ensure we are um, providing accurate, uh, authentic information to our audiences and they can use those those um, bits of information to make informed decisions. So I think one thing is to ensure that we have some kind of um, some kind of North Star or code of conduct or code of ethics that we um, are ascribing to. I think that's important. Um, there are these you know industry wide codes of ethic ethics like Mia provides. And there's probably also codes of ethics that uh, news organizations are either developing or have developed. They might not yet um, have implemented AI-specific guidance in them, but I think um, it's important if you don't have a uh, an, a policy on AI and you are a news organization that you start to develop a policy. You start to, um, in consultation with community members, ask them, you know, what are you comfortable with? What are you not comfortable with regarding how AI is used in our newsroom? I think that's a great opportunity to have a little bit of a self-reflection on these tools, how they're being used, and what audiences expected them. Mm. Uh, we can see from from what's going on in the states with regulation. Um, there's a lot of regulation in the states about how AI is used and transparency. And um, 
government requirements for being transparent when AI is used, in what way it's used. So a lot of labeling going on with um, platforms and companies to try to get that transparency to audiences and consumers so that they know this is an AI image or an AI modified or altered or augmented image compared to a image shot in camera. Wow. How how are they going to enforce that? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, and it's, it's a really complex question. Uh, Meta also, Meta, the, the parent company of Facebook, mm-hmm. recently announced it will start um, labeling AI-generated content. I imagine a lot of that will be done um, algorithmically. So they'll be able to try to algorithmically assess whether something is AI-generated and label it as such. Um, there's always room for error with algorithms. So I think they'll have some you know, oversight. And if, if people think their content has been flagged inappropriately as AI generated, there's probably going to be a way to report that decision and, and try to get someone uh, human to assess it and, and independently verify if it is or not. Um, but the, the really tricky thing about content online is that it, there's a lot of content online and it moves at scale really quickly. Mm-hmm. And so it's a massive undertaking endeavor to try to uh, ensure there's accountability and regulation around this this issue because there's so much content and it moves so quickly online. Wow. Wow. Awesome. Well, it's been really great speaking to you, Dr. Thompson, and uh, thank you so much for answering my questions as long-winded and complicated as they were. Thank you for having me on. It's been great to chat with you. And that was Dr. TJ Thompson and I talking about... The photo which Channel 9 claims uh, was edited by AI to make it more revealing. Perfect. Thank you, Rob. Now we're going to go into a song. This is called Jeme Bare by Kenny Akana. Je 
dépressif, alors laissez moi en paix Vous pouvez toujours attendre si vous voulez voir en paix Plutôt une balle dans la tempe enivrée Où mon cœur me porte et je m'en irai Moi je suis faite pour vivre entre les mailles de vos filets Je You're listening to 3CR855 AM and that was Jeme Bare by Kenny Akana. I can't believe I forgot to mention this just a bit earlier this morning, but a very happy Lunar New Year to everyone celebrating out there. Just as Rob and I were just sitting here, we could feel a bit of like tuts from the outside and I think that is the light dance that's occurring because I can tell from the beats and the sound and the vibes that I was just feeling from <laughs> just from being in the studio so kind of crazy that we could feel it from here but yes line dance performances just tend to be really uplifting and loud because we would usually tend to play those forgot snare drums i think that's what it's called i can't remember exactly but yeah the drums so gets really loud and yeah and usually that happens early in the morning and that's because when there's an open house or there's a new opening of a store we usually do that in significance for the memories of yep um congratulations are opening it's uh hopefully your store have a fruitful success. So yeah, so that's usually how it works. But yes, a very wishing everyone a happy Lunar New Year. It's the third day at the moment already. Usually it goes on for about 14 days. Yes, our celebrations are really long. So I wish I could be at home at the moment, back in Malaysia, to be celebrating with my family. But I'm also really glad that I'm able to spend some time here for Lunar New Year with my family that I've met over here in Melbourne. So yes. Well, we've got another headlines for you. A number of young Australians are in a large snowballing effect of psychological distress, particularly with loneliness that has uprised sharply during the pandemic, according to a new study revealed. The annual Household Income and Labour Dynamics in Australia, Hilda, report examined its data gathered between 2001 and 2021. Over a span of 70,000 people, 
17,000 people in over 9,000 households. The incident of distress remained relatively constant until 2011, however went on a consistent upwards trend roughly around 2013 for Australians. In 2021, 28.9% of females and 22.7% of males were in distress. And at the moment, the United States National Weather Agency has announced it is on a watch for a possible La Nina later this year. Climate scientist Kim Raid says that the likelihood of a La Nina remains a coin toss. So technically, they are the, te- but technically the El Nino period is st- we're still in that we're still in that moment at the time. But yep, there's already first weather agencies putting the world on the watch for La Nina. However, Australia's Bureau of Meteorology will be looking for atmospheric and oceanic conditions to indicate that La Nina is coming. So yeah, it's not guaranteed at the moment in terms of the climate pattern, but it's on a watch. Israel is in breach of its orders issued only a fortnight ago by the ICJ to immediately take steps to protect Palestinians' rights and stop all activities that could constitute genocide, the UN Special Reporter for Palestine, Francesca Albanese, said. Following the ruling, the Israeli government was giving a deadline was given a deadline of February twenty third to report on its effort to comply with six orders the court issued, including one relating to stopping the incitement of genocide and another to improve the supply of humanitarian aid. According to a number of senior Western officials, Hours of negotiation with Israel have only led to a marginal and incremental at best improvement since the January 26th ruling. The news comes as more than a million shouting, shelter, sheltering in the Gaza's southernmost town of Rafah are bracing as Israel prepares for a full-scale ground offensive in Palestine's last place of safety. Thank you, Rob. Now... I spoke to Dr. Uh, Arnie Itaway, a linguistic lecturer at Charles Darwin University, and also a forensic linguistic researcher about just a few days ago. And we basically, he focuses researches on terrorism, incitement to hatred, radicalization and genocide, and digital deviance. So that's his forensic linguistic research. He was also a former United Nations expert on mission and observer human rights violation in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And we basically spoke about the ongoing International Court of Justice South Africa-Israel court case. And we looked at the linguistics aspect of the binding with, quote, Israel must, according in the ICJ's order, after they have rebutted on Israel's denial. So let's take a listen. Good morning, Dr. Itewi. Good morning. Hi, Grace. Good to have you on our show early this morning. So nice to, so nice for you to join us. Uh, Pleasure so, mine. Thanks for having me. Lovely. So, Dr. Itewi, you've joined us on breakfast about a few weeks back, looking at the incitement of genocide and the role of linguistics in the South Africa and Israel case. So, before we get into what 
the Inter- International Court of Justice has rebutted about Israel's claims. Can you tell us what was Israel's response to the court order and the case itself? Thank you. Well, this is a very important question because it sheds light on the link strike between, on the one hand, facts, evidence, expert opinions, international legitimacy and international legal moral order. And on the other hand, propaganda, political dynamics strewn with mis- and disinformation campaigns led by settler colonial power with the aim to influence the public opinion as regards the alleged legitimacy of violations of the human rights, international humanitarian law and the international law. With this situation in mind, in the face of political dynamics and the framework of international law, nations worldwide are confronted with a critical choice. And here I'd like to highlight three Israel's responses to the case and to the ICJ's order. The first is related to Israel's response to the case itself. That Israel, the Israel's uh, defense team claimed that South Africa has weaponized the term genocide, which was coined by the Polish Jewish lawyer Raphael Lincoln, to protect the Jews and other people, and it has used it as a blood a blood libel. Well, months before South Africa's application and an early uh, warning of, genocide, of a genocidal intent and unfolding genocide, Lemkin Institute itself issued a statement in October 2023 warning of an expression of a genocidal intent encoded in Netanyahu's tweets. And the Center for Constitutional Rights, the U.S. Center, issued a 44-page emergency legal paper sharing part of evidence of Israel's unfolding crime of genocide of the Palestinian people and U.S. failure to prevent and complicity in genocide. The second response uh, started before the hearing sessions and appeared again during the second hearing session and afterwards. Mm. And that was akin to the U.S. and the U.K. political, not legal, stand, deeming the U.S.-Africa case meritless, counterproductive, and completely without any basis in fact whatsoever, and nonsense. And Israel vehemently denies the genocide allegations, describing them as, cited by the court itself, wholly unfounded as a matter of fact and law, morally rep- uh, repug- uh, repugnant. And the defense team and Judge uh, Sipotende challenged the legal basis of the case, arguing that the case is not a legal dispute uh, dispute suitable for a judicial uh, settlement by the court. And they requested the case's removal from the general list, contending that the accusations lack merit. But the court later on found the opposite, which I think we'll be addressing later on. And the third response came after the ICJ's ruling regarding the provisional measures. Netanyahu politically labeled the genocide charge as outrageous, while Gallant countered, the, uh, countered that by character, characterizing South Africa's case as anti-Semitic, in a clear weaponization of these terms, actually. And the court is there to be obeyed, not smeared or discredited, as is the case um, by the Israeli government when they started discrediting UN officials, for example, for for being vocal and supporting the case. So the world law order is being challenged for ruling in a case that mirrors and transcends Rwanda, Yugoslavia, and the Second World War genocide. And the Israeli side um, is always just discrediting the case instead of providing counter-argument and evidence. And the the defense team could not counter the evidence, uh, the avalanche of evidence on how facts 
presented by South Africa. And the last thing, uh, the last remark I wanted to mention here, it was by mm-hmm. Netanyahu, who said Israel, after the, the ICJ's order that Israel has an, an inherent right to defend itself. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the term self-defense itself was used, was used as a, a semantic, a semantic um, camouflage tactic. Mm-hmm. Um, and the legal paper by the Center for Constitutional Law, Rights has established that Israel's invocation of retaliatory action or self-defense for its campaign against the Palestinians in Gaza does not negate genocidal intent or, or actually it serves as a justification for its crimes under international law, including willful killing of civilians and taking uh, and taking of civilian hostages. So the center's legal stand highlighted that the right of self-defense is beyond, is bound by the principles of international law, and people who are under occupation has the right to self-defense. And Israel has one right, and that is establishing law and order, but not retaliating because they are the colonial, uh, the settler colonial power. Mm-hmm. And probably this leads us to what was successful in, in South Africa's uh, uh, allegation. Mm-hmm. So, and that is the legally ground and the contextualization of the case itself. So the contextualization of violence uh, was within settler colonialism as the wider context of this violence. And this contextualization, according to Francisca Albanese, the UN Special Rapporteur, mm. presents genocide as a dormant gene of settler colonialism and acknowledging, and by acknowledging that, we acknowledge that Israel is a settler colonial and that will help us move towards justice, end of quote, by Albanese herself. And according to the same UN Special Rapporteur, the claims of self-defense against violence emanating from within territories under occupation do not hold water because the international law gives this right of resistance to the population under occupation. And the only right, as I said, that an occupation force has in this situation is enforcing law and order, not a genocide. And South Africa successfully plays the acts of genocide by Israel as part of a continuum and in the broader context of Israel's conduct towards Palestinians during its 75-year-long apartheid and its 56-year-long belligerent occupation of Palestinian territories and its 16 or 17-year-long blockade of Gaza. And Mm. this is what Israel couldn't counter against, and this was confirmed by reports by the United Nations organizations and experts. Mm. But then even with until now, the Israel continues to deny the, uh, deny what they're doing and then hence the ICJ has also rebutted the denials of Israel's claims. So they now come to the point where they see that Israel must in a certain measures to conform. What are these must-take measures that the court has asked for? Interesting. Actually, the court issued its binding evidence-based order using the, the phrase Israel must, where Israel not only must take effective measures to prevent the destruction and ensure the preservation of evidence related to allegations, but also must 
submit a report to the court on all measures taken to give effect to this order within a month as uh, as from the date of the order itself. Mm. And the report so provided shall then be communicated to South Africa, which shall be given the opportunity to submit to the court its comments thereon. And we witness what happened after after the order. Um, there has been escalation uh, against UNRWA for supporting um, uh, and aiding the Palestinians with basic uh, food and um, uh, needs and uh, escalation in military operations. So the court considers that Israel must, so now I'm quoting the court, Israel must take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of A, killing members of the group, so that is practically a ceasefire, Mm -hmm. B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, and D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. The second must was Israel must ensure with immediate effect that its military forces do not commit any of the above described acts, which is again practically that's a ceasefire. Three, Israel must take immediate and effective measures to enable the provision of urgently needed basic services and humanitarian assistance to address the adverse conditions of life faced by Palestinians in Gaza Strip. And what we are not witnessing today and yesterday was a, bom- a bombing of uh, UNRWA um, convoy sending aid uh, to people in Gaza. So uh, there was a fourth main must, and that is related to the language, to the direct and public incitement to commit genocide. Mm. So the court orders Israel to do the following, I quote, Israel must take all measures within its power to prevent and punish the, the direct and public incitement to commit genocide in relation to members of the Palestinian group in the Gaza Strip. And I think all these musts uh, are founded on the, uh, on the fact that mm. the court has concluded that prima facie it has jurisdiction pursuant to Article 11 of the Genocide Convention to entertain the case um, and that is absolutely rebutting the Israeli uh, uh, claim that the case is not a legal dispute. Mm. And, uh, and these must, again, came in response to uh, a co- encoded intent in the language used by uh, Israeli officials. And the court refers to these statements uh, and statements by other officials like Honorable Commissioner General that the crisis in Gaza is compounded by dehumanizing language. And this might partially um, explain the attack on UNRWA. Uh, and just yesterday, the UNRWA chief mm. said that um, the, the, sharp incre- the sharp increase um, and attack on UNRWA might, might be um, ascribed to him going vocal or UNRWA going vocal. Uh, on the uh, humanitarian situation in Gaza. And these must also are founded on the courts finding that case plausible. So in the court's view, the facts and circumstances mentioned above 
and mentioned by South Africa, uh, are sufficient to conclude that at least some of the rights claimed by South Africa and for which it is seeking protection are plausible. And these must also are founded on the link between the provisional measures, I mean these must, and the protection of Palestinian rights. Mm -hmm. So the court considers that there is a real and imminent risk of irreparable prejudice to the plausible rights invoked by South Africa as specified by the court. And that was Dr. Ani Itewi, a linguistics lecturer at Charles Darwin University and a former United Nations expert on mission and observer of human rights violation in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We were just discussing the Israel must in the ICJ court orders, and we're going to look further at Israel stating its prejudice from these measures and how, quote, must has come to its eligible form of use. But in the meantime, listeners, stay tuned. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. in Community Radio. Come along to the NEMBC Multicultural Women's Forum, A Seat at the Table, where we can meet online and network, share experiences and learn new skills. This forum is being held in Adelaide in a hybrid format, so you can join in online as well. If you're from a multicultural background and involved in radio or interested in radio broadcasting, then this forum is for you. Let us meet on Saturday, 10th of February, 2024, for a day of interesting talks, training sessions and fun activities. Please register at admin at nembc.org.au. A link will be sent to you closer to the date. If you need more information, please send an email or visit our Facebook page, Women Broadcasters. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM here on Radical Radio with Grace and Rob for our breakfast show. Now I'm going to go to the second part of my conversation with Dr. Ani Itewi, who is a linguistic lecturer at the Charles Darwin University and also a former United Nations expert on mission and observer of human rights violation in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And we're going to look further into Israel stating its prejudice from these must-take measures that was mentioned in part one and how the word, quote, must have come to its eligible form of use. And yeah, with, with that response that Jat Nolte added, uh, that Israel state officials, including the members of its military, they, um, give rise to a real and imminent risk of irreparable prejudice to the rights of the Palestinians under the Genocide Convention. Why, why do you think they see this as a prejudice? You know, is it because of the fact that there's this Israel must emphasis in, impacted in the court decision? 
Well, this is a very important question. Um, and the phrase irreparable prejudice is uh, a legal phrase used by the court here. Mm. And it is the court that has decided that the criterion for irreparable prejudice and necessary provision measures is satisfied. Israel denies that there, there exists a real and imminent risk of irreparable prejudice in mm. the present uh, case. So here, Judge Nolte is referring to the inciting statements actually by Israeli officials. And he states that my decision to vote in favor of the measures indicated rests on the plausible claim by South Africa that certain statements by Israeli state officials, including members of its military, mm. give rise to a real and imminent risk of irreparable prejudice to the rights of Palestinians under the genocide, uh, the genocide convention. So the judge highlights that uh, there is a serious risk uh, that acts of genocide other than direct and public incitement may be committed, given rise to uh, Israel's obligation to prevent genocide. And these obligations cannot be issued by any other language than the must phrase, mm. because it's an obligation under the international law. So the court, as cited in, um, in its order, has the power to indicate provisional measures when this irreparable prejudice could be called to rights, which are the subject of judicial proceedings, the rights of the Palestinians in Gaza uh, in particular. And we need to remember that the court was called upon to determine whether the circumstances required the indication of provisional measures for the protection of rights under the Genocide Convention instrument and nothing else. So this was the task of the, the, of the court. And South Africa has provided an avalanche of evidence and hard facts to de demonstrate that the criterion of irreparable prejudice is satisfied where serious risks arise to human life or other fundamental rights uh, of the Palestinians in Gaza. And here the final say was, of course, for the court. Um, and in view of the fundamental values sought to be protected by the Genocide Convention, the court considers that the plausible rights in question, namely the right of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip to be protected from acts of genocide and related prohibited acts, are of such a nature that prejudice to them, to the Palestinians' rights, is capable of causing irreparable harm. Um, and of course, the court takes note of a letter by the Secretary General and a statement by tens of UN officials and special rapporteurs, as well as the head of UNRWA, who have been criticized by Israel for having the vocal and doing their job properly, that is reporting about the situation in Gaza. And that is why um, we witness nowadays that attack on several UN officials and UN organizations. Um, the, the final uh, the last thing I want to mention in this regard, uh, regarding the irreparable prejudice point, is that this um, prejudice has the, the the nature of agency. I mean, the the provisional measures to counter this kind of prejudice mm. has a kind of urgency. So the court considers that there is urgency in the sense that there is a real and imminent risk that irreparable prejudice will be caused to the rights of the Palestinians in Gaza before it gets its final decision, because its final decision may take years. By then, the Gaza Strip will be eliminated. That's why these must have um, 
the binding nature and the urgency feature. Mm. But I, I think it really comes down to the fact that you mentioned before, the judge doesn't really have to look at the links between language and criminal act, but just the incitement of genocide, hence why this must include, the quote must included, made Netanyahu say the charge is outrageous. So how has it really come to the point that makes it so eligible for the must as an order for this court decision? Interesting. I think there is uh, there are two points here. The yeah. first is related to, to the direct and public incitement to commit genocide, and the second is related why uh, why uh, does the court use must, which I uh, highlighted a little bit, uh, but I will focus more here. Yeah. Well, regarding the direct and public incitement to commit genocide, incitement itself is inchoate crime under international criminal law. It's intended a crime that is genocide does not need to actually occur to be proven. And prosecutors do not need to seek a causal link between the speech function and subsequent genocidal acts. However, the South Africa's team successfully managed to establish a link by sharing some videos. So Judge Nolte, for example, uh, stressed that South Africa has provided evidence not contradicted by Israel in any way that inflammatory parts of relevant statements by Israeli officials have been echoed in a threatening way by members of the Israeli armed forces in the field. And this was evident in linking between the inciting statements and how the soldiers on ground, uh, on ground interpreted the statements and carried out the mission accordingly. Uh, particularly in reference to the understanding of the use of the word Amalek by Netanyahu, mm -hmm. and, uh, and there are no civilians uninvolved in Gaza. So all civilians were tortured because they were blamed for not revolting against Hamas. Uh, and the other success by South Africa here is that this case is, this case is between two states, South Africa and Israel. Uh, and for Israel to claim that this is a war between Israel and Hamas, well, this is legally uh, doesn't hold water because um, there are no two states and there, is, and there is no war as such. So there is an, an occupation and the occupying force is uh, practicing all, uh, all these genocidal practices um, against the, uh, the a population under occupation. And incite, back to the point of incitement, incitement is an international speech crime. So the act of speech itself within the context of genocide, which is criminalized under international law. And there is no need to establish a link between um, the, the language used and the, the consequences uh, because it is an inchoate crime. Mm. Uh, South Africa presented evidence of the directness and publicness element of this crime and presented the encoded criminal intentionality requirement in the act of this incitement. So plausible evidence at this stage of, uh, of the case in relation to incitement to genocide is a present. And that's why the, the judge read uh, a number of statements that were that were um, clear and evident in terms of inciting genocide. Regarding the provisional measures, the many musts 
and why does the court use must? Uh, I think the court um, may indicate provisional measures only if the provisions relied on by the applicant appear prima, prima facie to afford a, uh, to afford a basis on which its jurisdiction could be founded. Uh, but it need not satisfy itself in a definitive manner that it has jurisdiction as regards the merits of the case. So the focus here is on whether there's a need for provisional measures. And these provisional measures were established as, yes, there is a need, and there is a case of reputable uh, prejudice. Mm. And that's why to counter these uh, circumstances urgently, uh, Israel must carry out the number of points I mentioned earlier. At the present stage of the proceeding, the court is not required to ascertain whether any violations of Israel obligations under the Genocide Convention have occurred. But the court's task is to establish whether the acts and omissions complained of by the applicant, that is South Africa, appear to be capable of falling within the provisions of the Genocide Convention. And that was well established. So the court concluded that Prima facie, it has jurisdiction pursuant to the uh, convention uh, to entertain the case and to issue the provisional uh, measures based on the hard facts and a mountain of UN organizations and experts' reports. Uh, the court considers the criterion of irreparable prejudice is satisfied, uh, and the requested provisional measures are urgently needed to protect the members of the national ethnical, racial, or religious group from plausible acts of genocide. Uh, and now we are almost halfway towards the, uh, the month period that the court gave Israel mm. to make sure that all these must are uh, implemented and uh, we are not seeing any progress. Um, more and more um, crimes are being perpetrated there. So the ICD's order are legally binding and the only the only ways uh, whereby the ICJ can enact tena is a through high modality through must. The high modality must is a linguistic technique through which the court expresses the highest level of intensity of obligation. It imposes that highest level of intensity of obligation on Israel. So Israel as a state party to the convention has an obligation now established by the convention uh, to take measures to prevent and to punish the crime of genocide and is now ordered by the relevant court to do so in relation to its aggression in Gaza. I see. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Itawi. It's been a Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. And that was... Dr. Ani Tewi, a linguistics lecturer at Charles Darwin University. And we spoke about the ongoing ICJ court case of Israel and South Africa. And we look at the quote, Israel must. That are the measures that are, be, that are needed to be taken for Israel after ICJ has ordered, after ICJ's order rebuts Israel's denials. Later today, a protest will be held outside the Egyptian consulate to protest the country's complicity in Israel's ethnic cleansing of Palestine. 
I interviewed Mohammed Halmi, a former board member of the Islamic Council of Victoria and a Greens member, to examine how Egypt is complicit and how it benefits from supporting Israel's killing spree. Okay, so why don't we why don't we start off by just talking about what uh, Egypt's ties are to Israel and their ties to what's happening in Palestine. Right. So, as many, I guess, people are aware, uh, Egypt was um, in a number of wars with Israel since 1948, uh, last century. Mm. And um, there was a, after, I think, you know, the three or four wars that were had in 1973, a peace uh, accord or a peace treaty was signed between Egypt and Israel. And um, and and that peace accord um, remains intact to date, and in many ways um, is um, is governing the position of Egypt with respect to what's happening in Gaza and in Palestine. And I guess also it would be fair to say that for many Egyptians, and, and certainly that's my position, is is that the peace, uh, the terms of the peace accord are unjust to Egypt. So, mm-hmm. um, so for example, it allows, um, it allows, um, Israeli citizens to essentially walk into Sinai with no visa. Uh, mm-hmm. but that, um, uh, that privilege was not, was not offered to Palestinians, uh, so people who do not have an Israeli citizens. In fact, Palestinians, as we all can see, I mean, in the, uh, in the 2008, the, the foreign minister of, of Egypt said, uh, and, and I, I, I quote, and I quoted him today, is that we will break the legs of anyone who breaches the border of Egypt. Uh, so that, that is directed at Palestinians, not at Israelis, because Israelis can get in with no visa. They can actually own property in Sinai as well. And indeed, they do own a lot of properties and own a lot of um, uh, tourist resorts and so on in in Sinai. So so that's kind of the the situation. Obviously, the people on the ground in Egypt, the vast vast majority uh, of uh, of Egyptians uh, in diaspora or in Egypt, absolutely stand with the right of Palestinians for self determination, the right to have their own country, the right to have freedom of travel, freedom to access water, freedom to fly, freedom of their airspace, freedom of their uh, coastal space, freedom of the borders. Um, and uh, Palestinians don't have any of that. Right. So leading on from that, are, are there ways in which the Egyptian administration, because like you said, the vast majority of the Egyptian population stands in support of a free Palestine. But is there, are there ways that the Egyptian administration sort of benefits from what's happening, uh, in Palestine? Okay. So, um, again, my, my reading of this is, um, y- yes, they do. The, uh, the administration in Egypt, the current administration benefits by uh, in, in a number of ways. One of them, the key one, is by simply remaining in power. Simply mm. remaining in power. Um, other things is, is financial support and so on, but, but that could come to any 
Egyptian administration. I think here it's about being the U.S. is, in, in my view, is the guarantor for power to the Sisi administration. Now, the reason this is important is because um, uh, for, for those not aware of the Egyptian history is that in 2013, the current president, Sisi, he came to power through a coup that uh, um, that essentially slaughtered about a number of thousands of Egyptians in on the streets of Cairo. Um, and, and, and he came through basically a military coup, ousting a, the only democratically elected um, um, president in Egypt after what was labeled as some kind of a revolution in 2011. So he ousted mm-hmm. that person after about 12 months in power and came to power on the back of uh, a military force on the back of tanks, essentially, that wow. uh, essentially rolled into the streets of Cairo. So he can't, he does not have internal support. The only support he has is his own military and the support from the U.S. to stay in power. The minute mm. he loses the support of the U.S. and, of course, is Israel, uh, he is he's not going to stay. He's, he's, his, his, his administration is going to crumble. Mm. So, you know, like eventually when, you know, as, as we all hope that Palestine becomes free and the genocide stops and the ceasefire happens, Israel will have to stop, you know, I guess somehow helping um, CC to stay in power. Is that? Well, if basically the, uh, the, the situation is if CC is not aligned, to be honest, it, it, you could compare it to the Australian position to some extent. Mm. I mean, Australia essentially follows to the letter the U.S. foreign policy. Yeah. Uh, the Egypt also does the same. Like if 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 mm. the, you can see the, the the narrative is is being copied for so for example, when the uh, American um, when the American president came out and said that the South African submission to the Court of Justice has no mm. merit, almost within hours you saw the Australian Prime Minister same, saying the same thing, and also the Egyptian. Foreign minister said exactly the same thing. It, it's yeah. almost like you know they, they all get emailed the same message and they all read it out within hours of the yeah. same thing. So if they in Egypt, it's a bit different from here. And that in Egypt, if they don't follow that regime, which has no backing internally, um, then is not able to mm-hmm. is is unlikely to survive, particularly with 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 an extremely severe economic situation at the moment in Egypt. I mean, people are really suffering with uh, things are very expensive. They can't access basic products, so there is a severe economic situation. So they're relying on on um, on foreign aid. They rely and and they're relying on foreign support from the U.S. to actually just stay in power. As simple as that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a typical military dictatorship. It's not. Um, yep. It's not new and it's not different. Yeah. Sure. Okay. But then, would you say uh, the relationship between Egypt and Israel has changed at all over the last few months? Um, I think strategically, no. Mm. But tactically, and and possibly there are some pressure points that are happening. Mm. Um, ob- obviously, um, 
CC still has to trade a fairly fine path in making sure that the US-Israel are happy, but also he needs to quench the anger internally because you mm. can't let it grow too much. He's got to, from time to time, he's going to make some statements like, uh, you know, what's happening in um in, in Palestine or in Gaza has to stop this kind of, you know, wishy-washy statements that are really for just public consumption, really not, yeah. not any more than this. But there are some pressure points now happening more as well because Israel wants to uh, reoccupy what is called the uh, Philadelphia Corridor, which is a thin mm. corridor between the border of Gaza and Egypt. And that's a 13-kilometer long corridor, but it's very thin. Now, um, Egypt is um, are starting to kind of say we don't like this and and they don't like it because it's for two reasons number one it contradicts the uh, terms of the accord that I mentioned in 1973 so it, it basically be, poses a threat to some extent to Egypt, particularly that Egypt at the moment, although I'm not sure if I believe that position is a genuine position, but are the, at the moment they're saying we're not going to accept Palestinians into Sinai. And Israel's position, obviously, is that they want to push the, all the Gazans into Sinai. Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah, I was just curious about it because um, I've seen reports, very recent reports, that um, Egypt is building like a a huge concrete wall in Sinai. Mm. Yeah, so so that actually is is a pre, the pre-existing fence uh, yeah. between between uh, Egypt and Gaza. It's pre-existing, but just recently they've actually reinforced it, uh-huh. and. Um, They've actually, the reports are saying, and I haven't seen them myself, but the reports are saying that it is now six meters deep in the ground yeah. with concrete and it's three barriers. It's three um, wow. fenced barriers. And these are the fence that if you've seen any footage of, of, of Palestinian kids standing on one side of that fence, pleading to the um, Egyptian soldiers for a glass of water that's where they're standing. So, I mean, they're standing at a spot where the, the, these Egyptian uh, soldiers could literally just throw a, gla- a bottle of water over that fence to these kids. And, and at the moment, you, you see the footage and they're just ignoring them. That, that's their orders. So. Wow. Wow. So it's it's a it's a horrific situation, and of course there is a bit of a discussion at the moment. Uh, you might have heard as well, um, you know, Biden calling the the CC the president of Mexico. Uh, I'm not sure if you heard that or not. It was a is a uh, maybe a slip of the tongue, or maybe just um, you know. Uh, other issues happening, uh, but he, that's what he called them. And he basically said that I spoke to the president of Mexico. He really, CC, the president, he really means Egypt. Uh, and, um, mm. and, and that I've convinced him to open the border. So there is a bit of discussion now. Like Egypt is saying it's Israel not allowing the trucks in. Yep. Israel and the US are saying it's Egypt that is not opening the border. Now, we don't know what the truth is. But I would say I don't know which is a more shameful position in Egypt yeah. to be genocidal 
or to be a country that, that is supposed to be sovereign and has no control over its own border. It can't open it because of Israeli pressure or U.S. pressure. Um, and and the in history, in 2011, when the only elected president of Morsi came to power for one year, he actually, you know, there was a conflict during his time and he was able to get his foreign minister across, uh, sorry, prime minister. He was able to get aid across into Gaza and was able to put sufficient pressure uh, on the U.S. to actually stop the conflict in, in, in Gaza. So it has happened before that Egypt was able to have an independent position a mm. position of integrity uh and 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 essentially you know put their own position and enforce their own position but uh, at the moment uh, you know you hear two arguments one is saying oh it's egypt not opening and egypt says oh it's israel not allowing and and mm. both are really humiliating positions for egypt it's either you're, you're you're either genocidal or you have no control over your own border it's one or the other yeah wow horrible Okay, so um, let's just move to talk about um, what's happening tomorrow. Yep. Um, can you just tell me a little bit about it and sort of like how sure. you organized it? Well, it was really very much grassroots. It's just be people, you know, uh, saying, oh, we've got to do something um, in mm. front of the Egyptian consulate, you know, because of, of, of their position. Uh, particularly mm. that, um, you know, it, it really started to trigger when we, we're now hearing that Gazans who have, say, for example, Australian visas, they need, they can only get out through Egypt. Egypt is charging them up to $10,000 per person to get out. Now this this is this is all over the media. This is documented. Mm. We've also spoken to people who have arrived here, uh, and we're raising funds for Gazans who have Austra visas to come into Australia, and we're trying to support them by raising funds mm. so they can get into Egypt. That money lines the pockets of corruption in Egypt. It doesn't go to the uh, national uh, uh, treasury. It, it, mm. it lines up the pockets of corrupt elite. Um, mafia in Egypt, essentially. But that's what's happening. They are charging people who need urgent and critical hospital attention or other needs that they need to go out there. They're saying you can't get in without paying that money. They are also charging trucks getting into the limited number of trucks that are able to get in. The reports are saying that they're being charged $5,000 a truck a pop to get into Gaza. There is an absolutely shameful position. Like mm. I am a person of Egyptian heritage and I feel deeply ashamed by that position. Deeply ashamed. I can't understand how somebody can be charged, uh, you know, people getting out or, or trucks getting in that mm. amount. So basically we said, okay, we're going to do something. And um, so we've decided at the time where the uh, consulate staff are in place, and that's why it's during the midday. There is a number of speakers, you know, there'll be a Jewish speaker, Palestinian, Egyptian speakers, unionist speakers, and we may be putting uh, constructing a symbolic um, fence at yep. the entry to the building as well to symbolize the fence between Egypt and Gaza as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. And that's at uh, 12 p.m. outside the front of the Egyptian consulate at 50 Market Street in Melbourne CBD. That's, that's exactly what it is, yeah. Okay, awesome. Well, uh, 
thank you so much for coming on to the show and on such such short short notice um it's been great having you um we'll include information about um the event in our show notes and obviously continue to plug it um is there that site that you mentioned where people can donate to give people funds to get across the border is that like where can people access that I don't have that handy at the moment, mm-hmm. but I can um, I can text you to you later. It's not organised by myself; it's other people organising yeah, that. So, but I can I can seek it out and, and text it to you if you like. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. We can include it in the show notes. And that was my interview with Mohammed Halmi, a former board member of the Islamic Council of Victoria and a Greens member. And we were talking about how Egypt is complicit in what's happening in Palestine right now, and also the events outside the Egyptian consulate, which is happening later today, listeners, at 12pm at 50 Market Street in Melbourne's CBD. Please, if you're free, uh, attend to show support. Uh, As I said in the interview, I'll include a link to uh, where you can donate to help Palestinians cross the border into Egypt. Uh, Now we are just going to play a segment from last week's Bunjil's Fire Show, hosted by Uncle Robbie Thorpe, which was broadcasted from Camp Sovereignty. In a moment, I'm going to talk to Garigula, He's been up there at the um, protesting at the, the Adani uh, mine site, stopping the development there for quite a number of years now. I think it's getting on to about three years, uh, maybe even longer than that. So, um, are you there, brother? Yeah, what a moly. How you doing? Ah, uh, Dilly, thank you, brother. Um, but we're struggling down here in the open. We're, we're broadcasting from, um, from Camp Sovereignty here in Melbourne. Deadly. And we've got Deadly. a fire going. We just um, achieved last yesterday. We got a fire permit for the next four months here, so we're in for the long haul here now. And we started That's to develop deadly. this place. So anyway, we want to have a yarn to you about how you're going up there. And how, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, it's, it's uh, day eight hundred and ninety-six here. So what's that work at in terms of years? What's that? Sorry, how many years is that? Oh, uh, it's just uh, it's just over two and a half years. Oh, okay. And so the the third year is coming up in in August, and so um, that'll be the uh, the three years. But um, I've I've been coming out here building ceremony grounds and fires since 2019, and have been coming back doing it every 26th of August until I finally got here. So um, you know it's it's that that build up to it, but then once we got here, you know I didn't realize that. You know, this was... I, di- I didn't expect he to be here this long. I thought I was going to get removed by the coppers and then I was just going to think of another plan to do something else. So but, how, how did you do that? Because that's the argument, how, how to stay there and yeah. being forced and, off. And So well, you got a formula, obviously, how to do that. Yeah, so I, I basically just used their own laws against them. So um, there's a high court ruling um, in Western Australia. This is called Brown versus the Commonwealth or Brown versus Western Australia. And it proved in that um, high court case that Indigenous people have a right to coexist with mining. So as long as we're not in the way of production, then they can't stop us from being on that country. 
of our okay. tribal homeland. So then through that High Court case then, I then attached the Human Rights Act in Queensland. In Queensland, we have Human Rights Act, kind of similar to the one in um, Victoria. Um, but I used that then and said, okay, well, the precedence has been set in the High Court that we have the right to be here. Now that we have the right to be here, under the Human Rights Act, I have the right to practice a ceremony. So when we got here, we set up a fire and we built a stone circle around around this fire and we had three rules. The, the three rules were, one, the fire always had to keep going, always had to stay lit. Um, two, there's no nigloo, no foreign objects inside the circle. And three, there always must be one Wanganyagalingu person inside the circle at all times. So we maintained the one person inside the circle for 408 days. Jeez. Rain, hail, or shine, no cover over the top. We had one person with at least one limb inside the the circle at all times. Jeez, that's, um, a, that's a big call to be able to do yeah, that. Yeah, I sat through 200 millimetres of rain in one night. Oh, hey, that was on um, Invasion Day, um, the first Invasion Day out here. So is that, and is that empowering? And, and I'm just sitting there under the next to the fire and I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing this for? <laughs> and then I think to myself, I've all, I've made it this far because of this thing. It's the fire, so, isn't it? As long as and, the fire's and, and going. Uh, the of what a fire is. That is. A fire, that like what you follow down there, a fire is an international symbol of the world's oldest symbol of occupation. That's right. And law, I say... Every okay. human being around the world, as soon as they have approached a camp and they've seen a fire going, innately inside your mind, you know that someone has done it because nature doesn't make a little pile like that. No. So then, innately inside humans' minds, even the people here in this country right now, they're scared of our fires because they know it, under, they understand it as occupation. That's why the that's why the, the the embassy in Brisbane lasted so long. Because oh, and the embassy in Canberra is lasted. Canberra still goes because it's a fire. That's right. It's our it's our connection. Because but, I said to um, the government that this is now my timestamp. You ever seen the movie um, um, Inception with Leonardo DiCaprio, and he spins this little spinner thing to to tell him whether he's in a dream or whether he's he's like living so right. our fire to me is my time stamp it's my thing that gives me my reality that i know that everything else around me can be doctored from history it can be doctored by the winners write the history books everything else can be fake except for the fire because i know it's alive and i have to feed it because it's alive yes yeah, so it's, it's a, like a living thing like a spirit yes it becomes the spirit and it's also the, the the basis of our law, and you know, yep. like and sitting around the camp, I see it's all, the oldest council, like you said. So it's so important. That's why I think they worry about it, it taking hold. But, uh, to be able to sit there for forty, four hundred and something days is, you know, you you I think you've cracked it. And um, but yeah, what effect? Well, I, what I effect are you having? Up, up in our up in our country up here, we um go through initiation with the boys going through they have to sit in a circle for three days okay. and I never understood that until I got here and then when I got here and I had to sit in the circle for three days because my nephew had to drive to and our drive to pick up another um, his sister to come back 
I spent three days in the circle, hey, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going crazy. <laughs> uh, okay. Knowing that I can just walk out of it any time that I want, but I'm bound to it by the oath that my family stood by. And it's that it's oath like was... an addiction, isn't it? And you sort of can't it keeps yeah, drawing because... you to it. And, um... Yeah, because if your family, if your whole family does it and they stick to it, two, three o'clock in the morning, you look outside and you see one of the family members in the circle reaching out to get something, but their foot is still inside the circle, not knowing anybody else is looking. Yeah. That's, the, that's yeah. the commitment that a family, that a clan group has put in. I've had like 30, 40 of my family members come out here and hold space on the fire. So then we said, okay, well, this is my whole clan group's fire. Absolutely. Um, this is not just, you made this is not the mark, brothers. So then what I've essentially created here was a tribal estate for my clan group. Okay. So then through the, through the native title system, they tried to screw us over and they tried to use native title to get me out of here. But the problem is native title doesn't address residency. It only addresses hunting, camping and fishing. So then I said, go away with your native title because I don't, I'm not here under native title. But they tried to use other people that were wanting this mine to go ahead to use the native title system around us. What? But I used a, I, I created a cultural customary law ceremony, uh-huh. which was a, um, um, it's kind of like a, I have a discrepancy um, and I, I want to be able to resolve this. I said to my whole mob, I sent a message out to all the heads of all the families and I said, this is my clan's tribal estate, and if you have a problem with it, then you have seven days to come here and make your objection. But if you come here, you have to bring three things. You have to bring your totem, you have to bring your skin on what skin you are in the marriage group, and what animal of law is here. If you don't bring those three things, then you don't, you don't get to qualify for a valid objection. Okay. So then once that, once that process happened, I've... I've I got people from all different mobs from around the country to come as peaceful mediators to just witness the um, the ceremony happen and and witness if people were to rock up. But just like court in a white man's law, if you don't turn up to court, you still get judged, don't you? That's right. So we made late judgment that they never turned up, so they've lost their right to speak over Watanungu, which is inside Wanganungu Nation. But we've just taken back our own tribal estate for our family. You said you sound like you've, you've um, tra- trained trained in their law. Is that have you got a degree in their law as well? No, I don't have a degree in their law, but I've grown up with it. You know, my my old man Adrian Buragaba, he's been in the land rights movement for such a long time. You know, um, my whole life, I've grown up listening to people like Uncle Robbie Thorpe, um, Michael Anders, Uncle Michael Anderson. Um, you know, all, all of those land rights people that, that had become educated in their system and have brought the law back to the grassroots mob. Ah, beautiful, bros. And then, first so, what do you think of... Because my cousin is, um, Tony McAvoy as well. Okay. He's one of the well, highest Aboriginal lawyers. Around right? native title. Oh, and, um, yeah. one of the so things like I wanted to that you've got that, seems like you've got the native title covered, but what about the Cultural Heritage Act? Is, that is... Does that yeah, well, it's got trumped because through the bua that I did, the um, this tribal meeting that we said, because the High Court of Australia recognises customary law, 
we said this is our customary law yes. process uh-huh. to, to settle disputes because native title doesn't have dispute resolution. So in our in our mob, we've got a dispute resolution and it's called a bua, where you have to come and sit down and discuss your discrepancies. Okay. And so through our through um, our bua, through our ceremony, we were able to we are now able to um, express to the courts if we have to how we did it and why we did it. And so through that now, blackfellas that come out here has lost the right to pick up more. You, you see, like, because the Queens, in Queensland in the land court, the Justice Kingdom, the president of the land court, stated in the Clive Palmer case that human rights cannot be limited for economic benefit. So then black followers that come out here to try and pick up my rocks, if they're coming here to get paid, then they can't pick them up because they're limiting my rights. But if yeah, they yeah. come here on their so own... So you've got all the bases covered there, bro. And that was a part of a segment from Bunja's Fire uh, that was broadcasted from Camp Sovereignty since Wednesday last week. And yep, if you want to listen to the whole thing, you can go to Bunja's Fire at 3cr.org.au. And yep, it happens every Wednesday from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. For Camp Sovereignty this week, uh, there's events happening, many type of events from documentaries and a lot of event screenings and everything. Din- there's dinner served at 7pm every day and smoking ceremony, ceremony at 8.30pm every night. If you want to learn more about the details about Camp Sovereignty, you can follow Black People's Union or alt.country.calling. And Camp Sovereignty is at King's Domain Resting Place. You can come and visit the camp anytime, drop in or even stay the night. And that's pretty much everything for our show. But uh, quickly before we we leave the studio, we just wanted to say that this week marks the beginning of uh, 3CR's subscriber drive. So if you've enjoyed um, any of our interviews or any of our shows or any other shows uh, on 3CR Radical Radio, then uh, please please subscribe uh, please support us. Um, you can subscribe over the phone or physically in the 3CR offices or even on our website. Perfect. Well, thank you everyone for joining us and you've been listening to 3CR 855 on our breakfast show with Grace and Rob. Thank you. See you next week. Tune in next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.